0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: This is our first fellow focus of the new academic year. We really took off with a bang last night. Um, I don't know if anybody was at the behind the headlines on the future of Ireland and its borders, but the work was packed, so uh, uh, it's, it's always nice to start uh, uh, with a big event. Uh, Our fellows, though, just in terms of what HUG does, uh, we do three things. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities, we promote multi- and interdisciplinarity, conversations across discipline, and uh, we uh, uh, run major public humanities programs, and obviously that's what we had last night. Uh, Our visiting fellows are a hugely important part of our research community in here. So obviously in this building has a lot of new faces, um, but we have 40 uh, early career researchers upstairs, and then we have visiting fellows, um, and we have lots and lots of amazing people who come and kind of give talks. Um, uh, John Morrill is one of those amazing people. Um, we also going to introduce him. <coughs> but John is here as a short-term Fellow. So we've got long-term Fellows, short-term Fellows. Um, uh, The longer-term Fellows in the Marie Curie's, they stay for 12 months. The short-term Fellows, like John, will stay from anything from a month to three months. Um, But he's a very, very special person in in my world, in Mingo's world, um, and uh, Mingo will say a few words about that. In terms of the format, um, these Fellow in Focus uh, sessions are very informal. Uh, John and Michal will have a conversation for about 25 minutes or so, and then it's over to you guys for Q and A. The mic, the handheld mic, isn't working. Um, I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you. Oh, you should try Yeah, go. I was going to tell Nice try. Um, sorry. I was gonna... If there aren't enough seats, just go down to the lecture theatre and get another one. Um, it's very informal, but the mics aren't working. Um, John's is, but yours isn't. John and Michael both. Yeah, the audience won't. So when you ask your question, if you could just speak up, the acoustics actually in here are not great, and it's always nice just to introduce yourself because it's the beginning of the academic year, we're all getting to know each other a little bit, talking of which I never said who I am. My name is Shane Oldmire, and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Longroom Club. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the head of history and uh, my colleague in the history department, Neil Sharp, who will introduce John and uh, chair uh, the uh, Fellow in Focus. Thank Thanks, you. Jane.
0: Um, you're all very welcome along uh, uh, this afternoon. Um, and as Jane said, we're going to have hopefully a fairly informal session uh, where I'm just going to uh, run through a few issues and and points with john uh, in the first instance for about 20-25 minutes and then as jane says it's going to be over to you guys uh for questions you may have and conversations we have finishing uh, jane says very sharp at five to two so to give everybody an opportunity for those of you who have to be somewhere at two o'clock and you know, as i recognize some faces here people might have to teach etc so we will finish up uh, sharply then but uh, you know john will be around for a few weeks uh, and we'll be uh, delighted delighted uh, I'm sure he'll be delighted to carry on a few conversations with you thereafter, so if you don't get a chance today, uh, there'll be plenty of opportunities for further discussions um, with him. So in the first instance, just very briefly, I want to introduce uh, Professor John Morrill. and some of you will know him, maybe others uh, uh, not. Um, John is is really just one of the giants of early modern uh, British and Irish history, uh, and really for the last 40 years uh, has, has been absolutely central to so many of the big uh, projects and developments and debates going on uh, within the early modern period. He is, I think, it's very significant, a professor, was well, Professor of British and Irish history at Selwyn College in Cambridge. Uh, uh, and as such, is one of the few, I believe, uh, English, so British historians who is engaged in a genuine way with Irish history, uh, not just simply as an addendum or an attempt to, to uh, explain one or two points, but in an integral way to his uh, his research uh, and the work that he is doing. And as such, uh, he's really been a pioneer in, in many of the uh, big historiographical uh, debates and developments since the 1970s. Um, and I asked John for a short CV. The short CV would be about 40 pages long, and it just goes on and on and on and on. Um, his list of publications alone would take me an hour to read out. Uh, you know, he's been in so many of the major positions uh, within the Royal Historical Society. He's a fellow of the British Academy. I mean, just involved in everything, anything that's been going on. And from the perspective of Ireland, of course, he, he's been involved uh, and was one of the key members of the team working the 1641 Depositions Project, uh, which was to bring this incredibly important resource we have here at Trinity College to a, a wider academic and public audience. And that's still ongoing, and since volume five has just appeared, and the Irish Manuscripts Commission, we've only seven to go. <laughs> uh, so we're getting there, um, but uh, at the moment he's also uh, the series editor. With Oxford University Press, of a new, we hope, uh, fairly definitive edition of the letters and papers of Oliver Cromwell, uh, a historical figure who has been very central to the work uh, that John has done um, over the last 40 years or so. And as I said, there there are many other things that uh, we could uh, talk about at this stage, but I'd say that hopefully this will begin to emerge uh, as as we um, talk. So, in the first instance, I would just like, as probably appropriate, if you could put your hands together to welcome John here. You. <laughs> okay, um, John, if we could just maybe get going, if you could very briefly tell us a little bit about your background, uh, sort of academically as well, perhaps as personally, to so sort of set the scene for, for future academic developments. Okay, okay. so, uh, well, first of all, great to be 100 balls here, surprise,
2: surprise. <laughs> um, Three of my four grandparents come from artisan stock, the fourth one from domestic service. So I'm an absolute classic product of um, the grammar school system. Um, going to the grammar school, coming to Oxford, one of on three books kids out of 120 in my year to go to Oxbridge. Um, and, and having an enormous you know, benefit of that, of that uh, education. Stayed in Oxford for 10 years, um, both to go on to do a DPhil and then a research fellow. Then they threw me out. Um, I went to Stirling in Scotland and taught there where I was allowed to teach anything except Scottish history. (laughs) (laughs) I was banned on principle from teaching Scottish history. Um, And then a call came to go to a college fellowship um, in Cambridge, which is a kind of second class citizen. Uh, for a fixed time, I gambled on taking that, and then to my incredible fortune, something that nobody expected. Um, a vacancy came up in 17th century history, I got it, and um, I built on that uh, for the next 40 years. So that's the kind of very important thing. I think it's important now in every child, therefore
0: much loved and loving the centre of attention. but how are you so about 17th century history what was it that attracted you to the 17th century as a historian Um, the historiographical um, wars and the
2: historical wars I mean I was actually quite interested as a youth in military history Mm -hmm. and in fact my history teacher at school was so uninterested in history, at least military history but so um, actually convinced I was okay, Mm -hmm. that I taught the class as a sixth former on Maudras campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, because he wanted to, do it, he said, "Oh, you can do it better than I will." Did um, you end know, up teaching it yourself? I started yeah. teaching it as a six form, as we might call it, my fellow six how Did that work out? It was, it was okay. And at that stage, I was actually, you know, quite um, quite keen on acting. But I then it turned out I had a really serious allergy to makeup. Um, um, and I started having <laughs> swelled up terribly
0: everybody. So, my. Is this, my is my this matching, a major television career as well as a I, story, or is this well it a
2: though, though, though I have to tell you, one of my daughters says, well, cruelly, that, Dad, you look much better on radio. <laughs> 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 I am deemed to have a very good radio voice. Um, but anyway, anyway, so acting, I mean, the, the acting part of teaching, I mean, is I think that kind of ability to. Make it sort of a different person, you know, for all purposes of being an audience is something that comes out of that.
0: I mean people talk today I and mean, there's huge pressure, particularly on scholars coming up through in terms of research, research output, in terms of grant applications, getting money, etc. To a degree the teaching perhaps has has lost its sort of preeminence, if you like, in the role uh, of an academic. I mean, is that something that you see in yourself change over time, or do you... Is it... No, 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 i would always been... I, I've always said, by our teaching,
2: we affect um, a relatively small number of people deeply. By our writing, we affect a lot of people shallowly. But the point is, when you affect a few people deeply, but they then affect a people. So your influence of teacher, you know, actually made deeply greater than scholar. As a, as a, so I've always taken and I enjoy teaching so much, but I mean the one statistic which is about this—a brag—but it is, it is a true brag. You know, I had one hundred and twenty-seven PhD students. All right, I just want to say that again, 127 PhD students, which is really quite... Of course, it's 75 jobs in higher education around the world in about 14 countries. So, I mean, you've got to say that an influence. <laughs> yeah. uh, I suspect it may actually end. So I hope my obituaries will talk about that you know, at least as much. About the mm-hmm. um, about the lab research. Well, the whole well, we'll leave the obituaries
0: for later on. Just carry on, carry on in the present. Um, but I mean, I mean trying to a way that you sort of said military history was one of the things that particularly yeah. because I, I wouldn't particularly see you as a military historian. So you've you sort of branched out, if you like, from right. a, a military approach. Maybe in the early stages, to something much more uh, eclectic. Yeah, productive.
2: I had to, to find myself for some purpose for a short. Season. You know, on online C V somewhere. And I describe myself as a, as a historian of politics, religion, society and culture. Um of course and, most of that's days, that's that's right? that's <laughs> this as well. I didn't <laughs> <can> include I didn't <laughs> include military in that.
0: why, why not? Military, good? I mean I'm I
2: am i quite interested. I'm obviously I'm once, I, once we, because you're involved in it, once we've completed the uh, multi-volume edition of All Cromwell's Words, which will transform, I think, our understanding of what he what he wrote and what he said, um, I'm going to write a big biography, and I'm to engaged in literature history very much in that, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm interested in
0: him because he, because he's an interesting figure. If you just take Cromwell as an example, because he's not a
2: creative or innovative in general. He simply has a unique ability to inspire people that, that they, that, that they the, the, the knowledge is on their side and they can't
0: lose. <laughs> 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 right. and, and it, it, I suppose, in many ways, people looking at your career, John, will probably associate you very much with Oliver Cromwell. Is he somebody, maybe as a historical figure, you would most associate yourself with? Or if so, what is it about Cromwell that, that sort of fascinates you and keeps you coming back? Um, it's it's the man I, I, I'm
2: I'm, um, I, I'm a committed Catholic um, I'm committed to the, all the problems of being a Catholic or to that matter being a Christian or even a person of faith Cromwell for me represents someone who tried to live out his faith in a very active public life and I find it much easier to study that phenomenon in someone whose faith is something that I actually quite repelled by I mean, it, the nature of his faith, I'm troubled by it. But the fact that, that the existential experience of living our faith is something I'm really drawn to, and that's what, that what draws me back to Cromwell all the time, because, because his faith both frees and limits him. It constrains him. And then, is it, if there's something sort of contemporary
0: almost now at this stage where Cromwell, we're living in an age where we would say religious to become more and more part and parcel of everyday life, on whatever side, uh, of, of that, that we look at, so in a way are we coming around circle to the seventeenth century, which was also a period of intense uh, religious uh, debate, discussion, conflict. Uh, so it, it is, it, in some ways, it's probably becoming something more of a contemporary figure, Jake. Uh, I, I
2: certainly not his ideas, but but the fact that the the fact that uh, I had a great I had a debate with Quentin Skinner recently because he upset that I said he didn't understand religion. <laughs> um, and uh, he said, I've written many books to prove that I do understand religion. And I said, no, because what you write about is what happens in people's head. What I'm interested in is the relationship between the heart and the head, um, how people live their lives. And so I, I, I've, not, I've become quite drawn over time to writing a lot of small biomes. About people who are relatively minor. So, for example, I did a study of a man who went around removing the monuments to idolatry and superstition from all the churches of East Anglia, an article I called the Bureaucratic Bureau. And and he was driven by, uh, again, that that, that, that rage inside him, which had rationalised down into a specific course of action. He felt drawn to one particular way of manifesting it. I mean, I've been interested in, in, um, in, in, uh, in uh, uh, two Baptists arguing about why a devout woman has, given, has, has gone to the Quakers. Why is it that we've got the truth, but we don't do it out well enough? She's gone somewhere where they live out their truth better than we do, even though they're wrong. So, I mean, I'm interested in that. that, that that's the phenomenon, as it were, uh, at one side of me, which is only one side of it, about, about um, the relationship between religion and politics, and I think we, we do need to recognise that, that, that religious um, conviction and religious um, distorted religious you know, conviction is about a relationship of heart and head.
0: Okay. I mean, you now speaking of Cromwell, I mean obviously from an Irish perspective, somebody has a perhaps very different reputation than he might have on the other side of the Irish Sea. But what was it that really drew you to Irish history in that sense? So you started out very much looking uh, at English history uh, and then maybe moving into British and Scottish, but then very definitely sort of beginning to, to, to move into the Irish field as well. So what was it that drew you in in that right, sense? Personal trauma. Um, um, I was asking give to talk
2: um, to the trauma Trong- the Historic Association, um, in um Rutland in February 1987, and they said, We hear you did a very good paper on Good Queen Mary and bad Queen Bess. Will you come and give it? So I went and and arrived, and they said, We're so grateful to have Professor Moll here to talk to us on the 300th anniversary of the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. And of course, it was the wrong Mary. (laughs) It (laughs) was Mary Judah. Um, I knew nothing about Mary Queen. Mm Scots and so I had to let that that to disappoint them. I had to give an England lecture, or I had to tell quite the wrong person. Uh, And I went away feeling terribly ashamed. And I met Brendan Bradshaw, who's a famous sort of story of Ireland, was in Cambridge, and he was being very very kind of glum because he couldn't find a way of teaching Irish history in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So I said, Well, um, if I mug up Scotchland, why don't we do something on the historic relationship of England, Ireland, and Scotland? It began with me doing Anglo-Scottish relations and him doing Anglo-Irish relations, but frankly he knew a lot more about 16th century Scotland than he did about 17th century Ireland. Mm. And so I offered to, he would do all the 16th century, including all Scottish stuff, and I would do all the 17th century, and that was the teacher. Again, it was teaching, but it was actually, it was more seriously, it was an awareness of my ignorance And it would be uh, the fact that I had abandoned it was really central to my big, big project that I had abandoned the idea that you could explain what drove, at that stage, English history by looking at either Marxist models um, of of vertical tensions within society, or for that matter, Aristotelian models um, of, of tensions between monarchy, aristocracy and democracy. And I knew I needed something else. I tried to do it by using the power of religious thinking, and that kind of wasn't really working. So then I realized suddenly that it, what might be worth exploring was horizontal tensions, as it were in a very crude sense, ethnic tensions between the peoples of these islands. And the people test ethnic tensions within the peoples of these islands might actually be a much bigger driver of long-term processes of historical change than the vertical than the, the ones that had previously been dominated in the field. So that was, that was absolutely central. And then discovering John Pocock, mm-hmm. and John Pocock, who, who was doing the New British History in a, in a rather abstracted way, I mean an intellectual history way, but he said, that it's a typically difficult sentence, he was a typical, difficult, difficult writer, but he says that in order to understand this, to understand what's happening in the islands, you have to see now to get this right. Uh, the peoples of these islands interacted so as to change the conditions of one another's existence. Mm-hmm. Now that, for me, became the motto for 20 years. So my bigger work has been about the long-term relationship between the peoples mm-hmm. and the politics that make up these islands.
0: Now, I'll come back to, to, to Randy Mitchell in a minute because I think he's obviously an, an interesting figure, a key one for yourself as well, and a colleague at Cambridge. but. Just to stick to historiography, uh, you talked about Bocock and and, and what he was saying with New British history. As against uh, John, as you know, a lot of people have criticised the New British history because they say, well really what New British history set out to do was to try to answer a problem in English history by, you know, sort of tagging on a bit of Irish and Scottish to come up with a solution for English history. And it wasn't really about an integrated you know, equal approach to the history of England, Scotland and Ireland but very much a, 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 and I suppose Colin Russell would be one of the key people who, who really explained it in that way and saw it in that way, which in and of itself maybe is, 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 is a, a legitimate approach, but in terms of trying to understand the history of these islands, is that new British history approach, do you think, the most appropriate? And there been other models, maybe the Three Kingdoms model, that is sort yeah. of, what would be the best way, in your view, to try and approach and understand the history well, Pope, of
2: his real passion was about um, the English Diaspora. I mean, Pocock was a New Zealander trained in Britain who'd gone to America. Mm-hmm. And he was, he, he was violently anti-European. Mm-hmm. I mean, he thought Britain had turned its back on Australasia. Um, and he wanted to talk about what the, the great contribution to world civilization was the, it was the English, English language diaspora. Mm-hmm. I completely reject that, as it were, uh, that view, because I think that what we're seeing in the, particularly in the 15th to the 18th centuries, is, is a, a set of processes which are uh, shared with most of Europe. It's a very European phenomenon. Now Jane has also influenced very deeply with her concept of the being in the 7th century of all five kingdoms. You can't, the three kingdoms themselves, you know, draw in a much wider thing. So first of all, there's an end of comparative history. Secondly, there's an area of a kind of Western European geopolitics. Um, and for me, that is a far more important process. And so one of the things I have set my mind against is the colonial model of Irish history. That I think that, for uh, me, and as a kingdom, with all its troubles, with all its problems, but it's because it's a, and so i developed the concept of the um, dynastic agglomerate mm-hmm. against the traditional historiography of a composite monarchy, which suggests mm-hmm. it being brought together in a kind of long-term way. Mm-hmm. These highly unstable, uh, uh, through dynastic chance, through dynastic aggression, um, th- th- these conjuries of territories being brought together and then processes of acculturation take in- incomplete and contested place. So that, for example, one way of looking at what's happening in the early modern period is to see um, a Scotland that looks north um, and east, uh, a, an, an Ireland whose native populations tend to look south and west, and an England that is genuinely eclectic, that takes now, The fact it's eclectic means it's not um, as Ireland is concentrating on one a separate cultural connection. So that is another thing which feeds into um, a, a, this complex process. So it's not, it's not hermetically sealed off. I don't want to do a hermetically sealed off new British history, but I want to do a new British history which is, which is um, essentially part, is driven principally by things which are part of the early modern European experience. And I played down, not eliminated, but played down, the colonial dimension. James disagreeing with this, and so she will get the chance <laughs> in a minute. But I, I remember, I remember Howard Morgan saying, in one of Nicholas county books, that um, when um, when the English wanted to come to terms with native elites in Ireland, they gave them um, their titles. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that to native princes um, in, in the Americas. And, and that they and they and they actually try them for treason. They bring them over and they lock them up in London. They don't do that. And they me, if you say well, that's a long way from America, the answer is precisely, but mm-hmm. Ireland it is next. Well, I mean, obviously,
0: you're, you're touching on some uh, major issues there in terms of how we see it. I always thought that the, <clears throat> the approach of kingdom or colony to me was always problematic. It can be both. Yes, um, yeah, and, and, you, and you, I think it's dominant. Yeah, and well, this is, I think, but I suppose, this issue of, you know, whether Ireland's a colony or not, and the relationship, obviously, with its <coughs> nearer and most powerful neighbour, England, is, is obviously a, a common theme, when should, particularly the early, the early modern period, and obviously has been central to an awful lot of the revisionist debates that took place <coughs> in Irish historiography from the 1970s in particular onwards, and that brings me back, I suppose, to Brendan Bradshaw uh, and, and his central role in that revisionist debate, and I suppose for you, entering into Irish history, uh, John, um, you know, initially perhaps through Brendan and that sort of link. Uh, what was your perception of that revisionist debate, why do you think it became so intense and, and, and quite personalized and quite unpleasant for so long? I mean, was that something that surprised you, perhaps, uh, coming from your own yeah, Well, that the point?
2: English much more polite. I mean, it would come to the, the end of a really bitter period for the starting of the period, which I think had a lot to do, I mean, I'm not going to do it now, but it have a lot to do with, um, with appeasement in the 1930s and the whole uh, kind of British uh, identities there. But, I mean, the, the, the English, the I mean, do we hear the English? I mean, I think the Scots are somewhere in the middle. But the English tend culturally to reduce history um, to heritage. You know, we don't fight about our past. Um, I mean, in so far as we fight um, about, um, you know, even even the even the very strong um, far left, for example, far right, you know, they 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 will talk about their martyrs from the past, but they're not sort of refighting the history in the way that the Irish fight because we have still got the legacy of of nineteen twenty two. I think that, uh, and so the need for a very strong nationalist history to underpin. You know the, the nationalist aspiration, the uh, incomplete nationalist aspiration. So anything that sought to undermine that and to challenge it. Um, pro- uh, so it took a video in form. what form. What revisionism, I think, across the whole of the story of the field was about was rediscovering um, the integrity of the past in its own terms. That is to say, the histories of both about how, how the past informs the present. By the residual gold that kind of continues on while the dross and the contingent drops away, all the exploration of the richness of the past in its own terms. Now, true history has to marry the two together, but a nationalist historiography will always you know, emphasize the vertical, the, the, uh, the, the that, whereas revisionists will always talk about the dangers of anatomism, will always talk about the dangers of. Um, uh, a strong teleology. Um mm-hmm. I think when you apply that in kind a of situation where the politics are still as raw as they are not far below the surface in Ireland, it's not surprising you get a rather more Tory religionism than you got in England. Okay. Um, and we
0: might sort so of come back to that exactly. minute, but we just have a couple more minutes before I get to open it up. Um, more generally to, to the audience here. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I, I do find it kind of interesting, John, when, I say, when people talk about Irish history, they talk about nationalism. When they talk about English history, they never talk about nationalism. But well, nationalism well, sure. is so central in my view to English history. I mean, it is an absolutely dominant right. factor in English history. Uh, and yet, for whatever reasons, it ne- it's never really mentioned in that same sense. You talk about Scottish nationalism, Irish nationalism. Well, but really, now, well, now, well, now they're slowly not, beginning no, no, to. No, it's,
2: now it's not pretty. It's pretty strong now, mm-hmm. and that, of course, and, it's, and of course, again, makes you pay attention to whether it existed before. I mean, I, know, I, I, mean, I'm not a very—I I don't like talking about nationalism in the in the early mm-hmm. modern period. Anyway, I think nationalism mm-hmm. really, um, really does have uh, uh, it, it, the, the, the kind of filter through which we see, it, it's so nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm very interested in work, people like Rhys Davis and the medievalist, medieval, who, who talks much more about peoples or about even like gangs. I mean, you know, he points out that, that um, and you can do that, that that what defines a people is an origin myth and therefore a pro gangs mm-hmm. Um and so when the old English come to Ireland and then they, they discover if they're out away from the pale, that, that they are Punishing themselves, they degenerate, they unrace themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that, that language which avoids the word uh, nation, not least because the word natio, you know, when the Latin you use mm-hmm. it, it not mean something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, nationalism. Yeah, no, I, I think you're probably right, but it's not. I mean, I don't. I, I am interested very much in what defines Englishness. In the 17th century. I mean, I'm at least interested in what defines Englishness is what defines the Irishness or Britishness. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but just, as I just said, moving towards the end of what i just like initially to talk about, but one of the things I think that you've been very involved in over the years, John, are projects, reaching out, if you like, for a broader non-academic audience, be it through lectures, uh, be it through uh, the, the works that you produce, be it through your work on television or radio, etc. But there's always been, I suppose, this tension between what is seen as public history or popular history on one level and what people call that academic history on the other side. And I think it was actually Roy Foster in particular in the context of the revisionist debate, sort of, you know, saw that this growing gap, as he saw, between popular history uh, and, and academic history. And is that, are there concerns there that you would share or do you think that is overemphasized? And I suppose in particular at the moment, is this sense of, you know, if you like, populism and uh, popular history, Sort of masking perhaps an anti intellectualism that's coming into society, a distrust of people that are coming from an academic background or from an elitist background. And so we're, we're seeing a divergence taking place. Here. I contradictory answers, I think, for that. I mean, in,
2: in um, I, I want also mainly talk about England here. You know, the, the fact that the BBC published gardening magazines, wine magazines, um, you know, uh, every kind of by far, the bestseller is history obviously, I mean, it outsells all the others. Um, and, um, and, uh, and you know, history today. I mean, uh, I mean, this is. I, mean, history, I don't know. If history Island is doing as well as it. Well, was. Still, doing well, no, I think. Yeah. And by saying that, people like you, know, you and I had a wonderful, you know, row on um, Patrick Gilligan's, you know, Sunday show, you know. And, you know that boy that showed popular engagement. Mm. I don't think it's, I, and there's there's jealousies by by those who were mere scholars <laughs> of you know, the revenues made by populists. <laughs> and there's a, always you know, grudge really grudges where people who are very good scholars seem to go to the dark side mm. for from, from, money. From <laughs> but you know that that's what that's human nature. Mm. I, I don't I don't see that. I think I think on the whole popular history um, is often is written by popular historians, but it's also written by by scholarly historians. I, mean, mm-hmm. I I don't see a problem with that. On the other hand, yes, uh, anti-intellectualism. I mean, this history is it's a minor player. I mean, you know, really worrying. You know, when you, you get um, the kind of state that our oh, people have, they have jabs for their kids to have anti measles jabs because you know the mass media says it's, it's uh, and there's no science behind it. I mean, the anti-science. I mean, scientists will need more to worry about than we do, really. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's sad. I mean, as I understand it, all the, all the in analysis, polls uh, on whether it's uh, Brexit or it's Trump's election or whatever, you know, is that there is one of the big gulf's is between those who have a higher education and those who don't. Mm-hmm. I mean that those who have higher education are still able to make discriminate or are able to discriminate. Mm-hmm. And insofar as even even amongst the populist politicians at the moment there's no call for reduction in the amount of, of, of higher education. One of the sadnesses is that you know, one of the victims of um, one of the victims of, of, of financial cuts in the last decade or so has been lifelong courses, you know, the opportunities for people throughout their lives to, get additional qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're the at the edges of the things which are which are going down. But I, I'm on the whole pretty optimistic. Um, I mean history in, in in England and in Scotland and in Wales and all three of them, there are now more 80 olds doing aidable history than English. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a, that's a big change over the last 15 years. History history is um, is is There have never been so many people doing history degrees. Although some of those history degrees are sort of going off into heritage studies. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and there are 15 universities which to a charity study as well in the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on the whole, I'm pretty, I'm pretty... optimistic. I'm really,
0: yeah. Well, I, mean, I think, is there, do you think it's all more important, I mean, given that, you know, the, the political classes, uh, certainly well, the, the government at the moment, the UK, seems to have a, a fairly tenuous uh, grip on reality and the truth uh, on, on a lot of issues that in a sense that historians have an all-more important role now to ensure that the past is not abused in a way that it has been most recently in, 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 in some of the debates that we've seen, that you know, historians really need to step up to the plate. Are we in danger again of getting historians sucked into political controversy here in a way that might not be helpful?
2: Geoffrey Alvin, uh, who was uh, in a sense my predecessor in Cambridge, um, and who was a, a, a you know, man who fled from um, Nazi occupation in Czechoslovakia. When he gave his valedictory lecture, he rambled for about 50 minutes um, and slagged off all his, um, all, all his long dead and rivals. And in the last 10 minutes, he just turned one of the most extraordinary 10 minutes of my life. He talked about in the importance of history um, to warn against totalitarian takeovers. And, take it. and he, it was just an extraordinary, I mean, but I will never forget it, and I will never give up on it. You know we have to re- testify. You know for um, the for the reality of the past, for our ability to relate to the past, our ability to inhabit the past. I mean, I, I have no problem saying that I make statements about the past which are without being physically present in it, because I am physically present in the records. It's so that, as I am to talk about what life is like in Australia from seeing you know the newsreels and so on. I'm much right to say that and and, in this world I went to Australia I was 90% unsurprised. If I went to the 17th century I think I'd be 90% unsurprised by the reality of what I encountered and I think we need to testify to that. I think it's life enhancing to put put yourself into the mindset of people in the past. It makes you much more tolerant of human being if you can understand how people made sense of the worlds they lived in makes you realise and you know, how limited they are that real understanding of our own times they are. maybe it much less arrogant. I think the more historians who are doing that the better.
0: Well look I mean there's so many things we could carry on from there John, but I just sort of conscious a little bit of the time and I just want to give people here an opportunity uh if they have questions that they'd like to to put to John and so uh, I'd open up the floor mm-hmm. there so who would mm-hmm. like to get us started. Mm-hmm.